You're listening to The End Zone with your host, Javon Cutler and Will Cruz, bringing you the latest sports news from across the country. And on this Tuesday, February 18th, 2020, live from Auburn, Alabama, Weagle Studios, you're listening to another edition of The End Zone. I'm Javon Cutler holding it down for today as we've got plenty to talk about in the sports world across several different sports. I mean, of course, got some Auburn basketball happening tomorrow as they face off against the Georgia Bulldogs in Athens. We're in the thick of SEC play right now and the SEC tournament starts in a few weeks. So Auburn trying to gear up for the tournament and try to get a good seating so they can get that double bye. But also we've also got to talk about the NBA All-Star game. They've made some changes to it this year. A great format. I'll talk about that more in detail, but it was much more fun to watch the All-Star game than it had been in years past, much more competitive, so I'll hit on that later. And also, I've got to touch and give my own two cents as far as this Astros cheating scandal, where it seems like every MLB player has has it out for the Astros. It seems like the whole league has a vendetta on the Astros, and they want to take them down, and looks like the Astros players won't be safe all season long. You can guarantee that they're probably going to be some pitches thrown at them intentionally by the pitchers and there might be some brawls that spark out of this later in the season but you know for sure that the Astros players are going to have to deal with that throughout the season but first to start off the show it's all about Auburn here we're in Auburn so Auburn basketball they lost this past Saturday to Missouri 85 to 73 on the road in Columbia wasn't a pretty game at all for the Tigers they were without Isaac Okoro their top defender who's nursing a hamstring injury right now. So this loss for them maybe could have been expected because we know we know Auburn's a great team at home, but on the road is where they have their struggles. They've squeaked out some wins, most notably Ole Miss as well as an Arkansas team as well. So you could expect some hiccups on the road for Auburn, but I don't know if anybody saw them losing to a Missouri team that is currently under 500 overall and an SEC play so this is something a little alarming for the Tigers but it's not too much to be worried about I feel like it's just one of those games where Auburn just didn't have it that's kind of the simple kind of gist of it they don't they didn't have it last Saturday and Missouri played their tails off and that's what Auburn's honestly going to have to get used to during the SEC plays that they're going to be able to get the best out of every SEC team because of Auburn's now rising status as an SEC elite team. Back in the day, Auburn didn't have to worry about that, and they wouldn't get their best shot from every opponent. But now everybody's gunning for that spot that Auburn's in, considering Auburn made the Final Four last year, and now they're developing into this really strong program under Bruce Pearl. So Auburn's starting to get that kind of Kentucky treatment where you're going to get your best shot from every team, so you better have it every single night, or you are prone to slip up. So I think Auburn has um, faced that kind of disadvantage all season long, and they know that they weren't able to do much in that game. I mean, if you look at the field goal percentages from Auburn versus Missouri, Auburn didn't shoot the ball terribly. I mean, they were 46.7% field goal percentage overall, but the three-point percentage was what killed Auburn. They were only 5.9% from downtown, and that is a problem. You're not going to be able to win games that way, and... We all know this Auburn team is not going to be as strong three-point shooting-wise as they were last year. We know that's going to be kind of one of the problems for Auburn, but we didn't expect it to be this bad where 
the Tigers are struggling mightily and can't do much as far as make a shot from behind the arc. And you got to give credit to Missouri. I mean, they played a really good game. They shot the ball great as far as fuel core percentage and three-point percentage. They were 55% overall, 54% from the three-point line. So Missouri just played their tails off, and you got to give it to them. They played a complete game, never took their foot off the gas pedal, and they just had one of these games where you you got to give credit to them, like I said. So great job for Missouri. But focusing on Auburn's next opponent now, which is University of Georgia tomorrow, going to Stegman Coliseum in Athens. It's going to be a 6 o'clock game central time on ESPN2. Georgia's going to look to avenge their loss earlier this season from Auburn. And Georgia kept it pretty close until that second half, and then Auburn was able to explode and knock down a bunch of shots to kind of pull away eventually. And Auburn won the game 82-60 to in Auburn Arena. And that was when Auburn was the fifth-ranked team in the country. So Auburn still in a pretty good shape. I mean, they're 13th in the country right now, still at 22-3, and 9-3 in the conference, all three of their losses coming on the road, Alabama, Florida, and now Missouri. And Georgia's been, you could say, a disappointment this year, considering they're 12-13 and 13 overall, 2-10 and 10 in the conference. And you have the heralded number one player in the country come to your school in Anthony Edwards, who's put up decent numbers this year but he hasn't been that efficient that's the only problem he's had 19 points per game which is looking pretty good on paper but when you look at the underlying stats he's only shooting about 41 percent from field goal range overall about 76 percent from the free throw line which isn't terrible but it's just the inefficiencies and inconsistencies that's really kind of heralded or I should say bring down Edwards freshman campaign this year there's no doubt he's got plenty of talent and he's going to be perhaps the first overall pick in this year's upcoming NBA draft, but you've just had moments where he's been disappearing and hasn't put up those huge stat lines. Then you have games where he's put up big time stats and sometimes it results in Georgia wins, sometimes it results in Georgia losses. So sometimes it's how he goes is how the Georgia team goes, but they're still competing pretty hard. I mean, they're not looking that great so far as their season, but like I said earlier, I think that they are going to give Auburn their best shot like they did in Auburn Arena this past season. And I think that for the Tigers, they're just going to have to shoot better. That's the one thing that Auburn's going to have to deal with. And I think a key for them is going to be Austin Wiley, who's continuing to put up great numbers. He's averaging a double-double over the past few games. He's looking pretty strong, dominating the boards and attacking the paint inside with his presence. So I think that's going to be a huge key for the Tigers as far as making sure that he's being fed the ball as many times as possible and then just knocking down your shots, relying on a Samir Dowdy to get your offense going. McLemore, McCormick could step up because Okoro's not going to be playing in this game either. So I think Auburn's going to have to have their next man mentality and just rely on that, whether it be like a Devin Cambridge or somebody like that or even a D'Angelo Pirafoy who's been kind of inconsistent this year. So I think for Auburn, they've gotta, they're going to have to step up as far as their play and we all know Auburn, like I said, is a tough, is one of these teams that are not that great on the road. It's going to be a tough environment in Georgia. You know, those fans are going to come out to support their Bulldogs and see a ranked team play in Auburn. So Auburn better be on their P's and Q's as far as paying attention to what happens because there's no given wins in SEC play. And it's just been one of these weird seasons in the SEC where it seems like every t- good team's had a questionable loss. We go back to Kentucky earlier in the season and they had a 
lost to Evansville at Rupp Arena early in the season. You have an LSU who lost in conference play to a Vanderbilt team that hadn't won a conference game in two years, and LSU lost that game, and LSU's kind of tumbled since then and fallen out of the top 25 AP rankings. But for Auburn, Missouri was their worst loss of the season. Alabama's still a bubble team. Florida's most likely going to make the tournament still, according to some bracket projections. But for Auburn, that was for sure their kind of down or down point of the season. And I think they will bounce back. They're going to be resilient. You know Bruce Pearl's going to have those players coached up and ready to go for this game. So I think that for Auburn, it's going to be a bounce-back game. And you're hoping they're not looking forward to the Tennessee game, which is going to be this Saturday early morning game on CBS because we all know Auburn Tennessee have been the two upstart teams in the league the past few years. Tennessee's having a bit of a down year this year. They're only 14 and 11 overall, even six and six in conference. But you know that you're going to expect something from Auburn. You know, they're going to step up their defensive intensity. Their offense is going to look much better. You figure. And I think for their defense of scheme, you just got to stop Anthony Edwards. I think that's the main guy you got to key in on, make sure he doesn't get a bunch of points to kind of spark this Georgia Bulldogs offense and make sure that you make every basket he gets difficult for him and don't give up easy shots. That's kind of the simple mentality you've got to have if you're Auburn because we know that Georgia has had a down year, but SEC play sometimes brings out the best of people. And I think that is going to be a huge thing for the Tigers is just to make sure they do that. And I think physically they have no problem as far as McLemore and Austin Wiley as far as getting rebounds because Auburn is among one of the best rebounding teams in the country, 11th to be exact, at almost 42 rebounds per game. So I think that for Auburn, if they rebound the ball, get better consistent shooting from their guards, also have a player step up that comes off the bench other than possibly Anthony McLemore, I think that Auburn will be in good shape and should be able to pull out a win in Athens. If I had to give a final score prediction for this game, I think Auburn's going to win. It's going to be closer this time, I think, than the game here in Auburn. But I think Auburn's going to win, I'd say, 76 to... I'll go 76 to about 70. I think Georgia will make this game really interesting since it is at home, and Auburn will be up for the task. They know they're going to get their best shot from Georgia, but Bruce Pearl will have his team coached up. They're going to be resilient, and they're going to be all good to go heading into the game against Tennessee. But with that being said, this has been the end of the first quarter here on The End Zone. Don't touch that dial. End your day with The End Zone. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to The End Zone with Cutler and Cruz. Welcome back. You've reached the second quarter here on the end zone. We go 91.1 FM and the second quarter for today is going to feature NBA basketball. Well, games don't start officially again until Thursday. We had the NBA all-star game this past weekend in Chicago. There's a lot of festivities going on. We also had the rising stars challenge had the celebrity game. Both of those events took place on Friday. Then we had the skills challenges on Saturday with the, three-point shooting contest, dunk contest, and also like the skills competition with the various players. Then 
to cap it off sat Sunday night, we had the NBA All-Star game. So it was a pretty jam-packed weekend as far as the NBA was concerned, but kind of breaking it down event by event, I thought it was a really great job by the city of Chicago hosting the NBA All-Star game. Seemed like everything went pretty smoothly as far as that. They did a touching tribute to Kobe and his daughter and the other victims who were involved in the helicopter crash. They did a kind of great job as far as that was concerned. And going to Saturday, I know Saturday was one of those exciting days as far as the skills competition won by Bam Adebayo of the Miami Heat. Three-point competition was really fun to watch. And Buddy Heald of the Sacramento Kings won that. And the dunk contest was among the one of the best dunk contests in recent memory. And it was not it was filled with controversy. That's the best way to say it, as Derek Jones Jr. won the crown over Aaron Gordon. And many people believe Aaron Gordon got robbed once again as he is now a two-time loser of the slam dunk contest. He lost in 2016 to Zach Levine, and that one was filled with controversy as well. But Gordon thought he had a better shot to win it this year, especially after putting up a bunch of 50-point performances that were graded by the judges for the slam dunk contest. Did some 360 dunks off the backboard. Did a lot of creativity. Even dunked over 7'5", Boston Celtics player Taco Fall, and still couldn't win over the judges who were enamored by Derrick Jones Jr.'s dunks over or behind his legs and between his legs and all types of kind of weird contortions as far as his dunking was concerned. But this was still a really fun dunk contest to watch. Everybody brought their own kind of creativity to it as, as you would expect from a dunk contest. Dwight Howard made his return after not participating in the dunk contest. And he did a nice little tribute to Kobe with the Superman symbol and had the 24 in between there. So good gesture right there by Dwight Howard of the Lakers. And like I said, it was just a fun dunk contest to watch. It was something that definitely kept your eyes glued on the TV. Could have gone either way, but it, once again, it was one of these moments where it, it's the judges have the power to say as far as, of course, who wins the dunk contest. People were thinking Dwayne Wade might have showed a little bit more bias toward Jer Derek Jones Jr. than others. And some people might think that Aaron Gordon should have won it this time. It was just one of these things where I think somebody had to be rewarded a winner, and I don't agree that they should have had a tie as far as the code champion. I think somebody would have won it. They would have just had to do another dunk off, which they did the first time as far as who had the best dunk because, I could, of course, those dunks exert a lot of energy from the players, so you can't expect them to always contribute to amazing dunks later in the rounds, especially if they're doing like nine or ten dunks, and if they miss the first time, they've got to try the whole scenario over again and that takes up a time and also their energy and effort so I do commend the players for putting on a great all-star weekend as far as the festivities were concerned but everybody of course was in love with the game and the format that took place once again it was the top two vote getters in each conference in the western conference it was LeBron James and in the eastern conference it was Giannis Antetokounmpo and those two players chose their teams. And everybody thought coming into the game that LeBron had the overwhelmingly best team compared to Giannis. LeBron basically had all the top Western Conference players sprinkled in with a few Eastern Conference players. And Giannis 
on the flip side, had mostly Eastern Conference players sprinkled in with one or two Western Conference players. But the game was much more entertaining than people would have thought. I mean, it was one of these games where I think everybody's going to remember it forever. And the revamp format really helped a lot. And the first three quarters were what you consider mini games because each quarter that each team won, the money, there was money given for charity. It was I believe it was $100,000 going to each charity. And Giannis, of course, picked his own charity. And LeBron picked his own charity. And the kids were sitting behind the baskets rooting on each team. But I think this was a great format. I mean, Giannis and LeBron both put on a great show as far as them respectively and then the other players stepped up as well Kawhi Leonard did a great job he won the MVP for the all-star game they also had great contributions from Kemba Walker and players stepping up as well Harden didn't do that well but he also had some surprises like a Chris Paul lob dunk and nobody could ever remember Chris Paul dunking but he was able to get up there and slam dunk he had some crazy plays as well Trey Young making a Shot at the buzzer, descended into halftime from half court. So it was a entertaining all-star game, especially in that fourth quarter. And I think that's what everybody absolutely loved about this all-star game was the intensity that the game picked up, especially in that fourth quarter when both teams were playing defense because there was a target score that the teams had to reach. And it was based off of how many points there were. So I think the target score was 157 in this game. And Giannis' team was actually leading heading into the fourth quarter. So LeBron's team really had to turn on their defense, and they did for sure. You saw offensive fouls being called. You saw blocks. You just saw much more competitive NBA play than you would see from previous All-Star games. And at times, it really did feel like a playoff game, and these guys were really invested into the game. They were making sure that they were going to get their charity and these kids, the money, because, of course, both causes were to support the youth of Chicago. So both teams really put on a great show. The only thing I did not like was that they made a, I guess, the way the, of course, LeBron's team won 157 to 155, but the way that LeBron's team won was via a free throw by Anthony Davis. He missed the first one, but he made the second one, and that's how they won. The only change I'll make is the teams can't win on a free throw because that kind of makes the game anticlimactic, especially with the way the game was going. He was going back and forth. Harden thought he had won the game on a shot. He made a three-point shot, but there was an offensive foul called. Kyle Lowry was playing great defense in that fourth quarter. He drew a couple of offensive fouls, so he was playing great defensively out there. And you just had a bunch of competitors going at it. That's the fun thing about this game. And that's why you also love the NBA because you could tell that these guys really do play hard in the fourth quarter, especially with this new format and the incentive that comes with it as far as you're going to win money for your charity. The money was $300,000 for whoever won the game overall. Giannis decided to match it a day later and say, I'm going to donate $100,000 out of my own pocket to this other Chicago organization. So kudos to Giannis for doing that. And it just looked like both these, each team was having fun. That's the most important thing. They were being serious, but it was fun. Nobody got hurt. It was just something really f- cool to watch as far as from a basketball fan perspective because you're always used to all-star games being about, let's see what crazy dunks they could do or what long 50-foot shots they could make or anything kind of ridiculous like that. 
which you did see some of that in the first three quarters, but that fourth quarter, everybody really hunkered down and made sure that they're being serious. And if, like I said, it felt exactly like an NBA playoff game. There were some stops. Field goal percentages went way down after that first three quarters. Dunks, there were 48 dunks in the first three quarters, only three in the fourth quarter. And it just looked like everything was getting much more serious. Even fouls were called. Guys were going to the free throw line, which you didn't really see in the first three quarters. So you can just really tell that this was a much-needed revamping of the NBA All-Star game. And kudos to Chris Paul, who's the NBA player's vice or NBA player's president. And he was the guy who kind of suggested these changes to Adam Silver. And Adam Silver, Silver enacted these changes. And I like the idea of the kind of set target score in the fourth quarter and not having a shot clock to worry about because these guys are going to play much harder and they're going to aim for that specific score instead of just trying to waste time as far as the clock is concerned. Because if you have a shot clock, you just use a majority of the shot clock if you're winning and just kind of ride that to victory. But no, with this, you got to score the game or score the buckets and stuff like that. So, And I don't think anybody mind the fourth quarter being especially long. I mean, it was longer than the first three quarters. I believe fourth quarter was almost an hour long around that time, and it didn't even feel like it because everybody was so invested into the game, both fans and players and commentators alike. So this was a great challenge or great move by the NBA to change their format and also look to other ideas for this type of format because Ice Cube's Big Three League, which features some veteran former NBA players as well as some upstart guys who are looking to join the NBA, they have this tar- set target score as well in order to win the game. And I think the NBA borrowed from that. And also there's this tournament called the Basketball Tournament that features some overseas players who used to play in the NBA. Some of them did. Some of them are strictly foreign overseas players, but they also have a target score where they have to reach a certain thing before they win the game. And it just brings out more competitive nature from the players and it was just something fun to watch. So I think that the NBA needs to stick with this format year in and year out to honor. And I know they did the 24 points thing in the fourth quarter to honor Kobe. So I think that works out perfectly. And I also like the jersey ideas as far as the 24 and the 2. LeBron chose number 2, Kobe's daughter Gianna, to wear in the game. As well as the other players on the team, LeBron. They also wore number 2 to honor his daughter. And then Giannis... And his team were number 24. So I like that idea for the All-Star game as well, especially this first year. I don't know if they're going to do that every single year, but I do like that target score setup that they did implement this year. And I think that if they do continue to do that, you're going to get more competitive All-Star games and you're going to get the best competition that you want to see out of each player because that's what the fans pay for. They don't pay to see all these kind of They pay to see dunks and stuff like that, but they also don't want to see a competitive game. And that's where the NFL lacks, I feel like, is that the games aren't really that fun to watch, especially talking about the Pro Bowl, because there's not going to be a bunch of hard-hitting tackling going on. These players don't want to injure themselves. There's just going to be kind of touch-type football where it's going to be soft tackling, going to lie on the ground, just really easy touchdowns. And I think that the NFL could take a cue at the NBA and just set like possibly a target score or something like that, or even just make it dumb it down to like flag football if you really want to protect these players and make it a little bit more fun. Flag football is still a competitive sport. Nobody's going to get hurt. There's flag pulling, and it's just something that the NFL needs to look at. But the NBA, once again, being a progressive league, has done a great job as far as revamping their all-star game format. And I hope other leagues take notice and make their all-star games 
much more competitive. But with that being said, you reach the end of the second quarter here on The End Zone. Don't touch that dial. End your day with The End Zone. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to The End Zone with Cutler and Cruz. And welcome back. You reached the third quarter of the end zone here on WeGo 91.1 FM. The third quarter, it's going to feature baseball today. Baseball season is starting really soon. Teams are already starting their spring training. They're down in their facilities in Florida and Arizona, respectively. So that means it is almost baseball time. And the first game of spring training, believe it or not, is this Friday at 2.05 p.m. Central Time between the Texas Rangers and the Kansas City Royals. But those teams will not be making as many headlines this year as the Houston Astros, who have been the talk of not only baseball but the sports world the past few months as this scandal has really boiled boiled over. And the scandal I'm talking about is their cheating scandal where they were basically sealing signs from teams to win games and they won the World Series in 2017 using this type of strategy. A lot of players aren't happy about it. But one particular person that seems like he's standing up for the Astros is the MLB commissioner Rob Manfred and he's according to his ESPN article he's warned Grapefruit League which is the Florida League managers against acts of vigilante justice pitchers targeting the Houston Astros with beam balls because of their illicit sign stealing and Manfred also said that he's going to impart the same message to the Cactus League which is the Arizona teams out there he's going to tell them tonight as far as don't do that to the Astros so it's just a weird situation and I think it's been really poorly handled as far as the commissioner is concerned because you know that you're going to face a lot of backlash because you did not spend any of any of the Astros players who were a part of this scandal yet you still have yet you fired the manager and well, he didn't fire the manager. The Astros took care of the manager and the general manager, and he gave them punishments as far as them being banned from baseball for a year and gave the Astros a strict fine, but he didn't do anything as far as player suspensions individually, which I think irks a lot of the players playing on the other 29 teams because they know that they try to play the game with integrity and make sure that they preserve the baseball and stuff like that, but... A lot of players are not happy as far as this Houston Astros kind of preferential treatment given by Rob Manfred, and Manfred's even kind of disgraced baseball in some more aspects as far as calling the World Series trophy just a hunk of metal, which that's what the players play for is the World Series trophy and the chance to be remembered in baseball history as a legend. So I think Manfred's really handled the situation poorly from a PR standpoint, and Astros they know that they're going to be facing a bunch of scrutiny from every other team this year. It's not going to be pretty, and I don't think these players are going to care that Manfred told them not to throw at the Astros players. I, I can expect a bunch to happen as far as the Astros are concerned. And I just think that it's going to get really ugly at some point in the season, and you're for sure going to see some type of retaliation from the Astros players as far as if they keep throwing at the players, the players are going to come back and try to, you know, might start a brawl on the field, which is more than possible, it seems like. 
And it's just really frustrating, I'd imagine, if you're the other teams and you're hearing that this one team cheated and won the World Series and they're not going to do anything as far as removing their trophies and baking rings and all that type of stuff. And from my opinion, I know you can't really take back the World Series trophy as far as, hey, let's take up the trophy and give it to the Dodgers who the Astros were facing in the World Series this past year or in the when the World Series in 2017 when they won it. But you still, it's just a tough situation, I feel like, for Astros fans and the Astros and MLB in general because they know the Astros are going to be the villains this year. Like They're going to be booed in every away stadium even louder than they were before and it's going to feel probably like a playoff atmosphere every single series they go on the road because these fans aren't going to like the Astros especially some of the kind of cover-ups that they were doing the most notable cover-up was the Jose Altuve situation where he hit the walk-off home run this past year in the ALCS against the Yankees to send the Astros to the World Series and you can see on the video when he was rounding the bases he was telling the players don't grab at my shirt and some players thinking that there was perhaps a little buzzer attached to Altuve's chest. So obviously if the players ripped off the shirt, then you would see the buzzer that is clearly on his chest. But Altuve says that he had got a tattoo and perhaps ta the tattoo still hurt at the time. And he didn't want the players to grab at his chest for that. But it's just a bunch of kind of mixed signals that you're getting. I know Carlos Correa hinted at the tattoo possibility. And some images you can see a, a tattoo kind of showing other images, you can't really see a tattoo. You might see like a little sliver of a like wire-ish type of thing connecting from the jersey, but it's just one of these weird situations that the MLB has found themselves in, and it's not going to be great for the Astros at all. I think that they're going to be in a world of trouble this year. And you know it's bad when you have players speak up that normally don't say much as far as other baseball matters concerned, like a Mike Trout, who was really frustrated by this situation. You know Mike Trout, one of the quietest superstars in all of sports, if not the quietest superstar in all of sports. He was frustrated by this scenario. And also the Braves' Nick Markakis was saying that this was absolutely terrible and they need to get punished for this and they need to get a beaten for this. And beaten could be taken out of prop out of context by what Markek has said, but he's just saying that, hey, we need to really kind of police this and make sure that this not, does not happen again. And it's just a bad situation. I do expect these Astros players to get hit or there be, there'll be good. There's going to be a lot of hit by pitches. I'll just say that there's going to be some big time hit by pitches throughout the season. Of course, when the Yankees play the Astros, that will be a huge controversy right there. I don't believe they play the Dodgers this year, nor do they play the Nationals. I'll have to check on that. But it's just something that the Astros are going to have to deal with. And the first home series of the year for the Astros is going to be against the Angels and Mike Trout. So, But they play at home, so we'll see what happens as far as that. But their first road series is going to be at the end of March against the Athletics in Oakland. So the Astros will have to probably bring protection as far as their gloves and stuff like that and whatever they need I guess to protect protect themselves because they know that and whatever padding I guess you could have as far as like your batting gloves and all that type of stuff because like I said they should expect to be hit it's just a part of the game sometimes if you cheat or if you show somebody up 
you're going to get hit. Sometimes it's going to be intentional. Sometimes it's going to happen unintentionally, but you could expect intentional things to happen to the Astros, it feels like, with this situation and the hatred that's spewing towards the manager or towards the commissioner, I feel like, is justified because why would you protect a team that is practicing, I'd say, unholy behavior as far as cheating in a sport and you still let them have their things. So it's it's one of these bad situations for all involved as far as the Astros and Rob Manfred. And I think players have already lost respect from Rob Manfred, but this just adds kind of more fuel to the fire as far as losing their respect. You've had players besides Trout and Marquecas, such as Cody Bellinger, who said that for sure this is a bad look. He went on to say much more than that, but that's kind of a gist of what he said. It's a bad look. And also in this ESPN article, it said that pitchers such as the Cleveland Indians, Mike Clevenger, and Los Angeles Dodgers, Ross Stripling, have hinted at the possibility of throwing Astros hitters. And also Boston's Chris Sale and the Dodgers' Alex Wood are among veterans who have said they expect opponents to police the game on the field to some degree. So it's something that's going to be a sticky situation for the Astros throughout the season. It is not going to be pretty at all. I feel sorry for Dusty Baker, who's taken over now as the Astros' new manager after A.J. Hinch was fired. Dusty Baker is kind of trying to play peacemaker in the situation. and He's trying to say that I'm depending on the league to try to stop, try to put a stop to the seemingly premeditated retaliation that I'm hearing about. In most, and in most instances in life, you get kind of reprimanded when you have premeditated anything. I'm just hoping that the league puts a stop to this before somebody gets hurt. I mean, I hate to say it's dusty, but somebody's going to probably get hurt. It's just part of the game. Players did not like this at all. There might be some instances back in the day in the early 1900s when World Series were going on and people were cheating. And they won titles, but nobody remembers that, and they're not remembered in the records books. All we do right now is live by the recency bias, and the recency bias right now is that your team cheated to a World Series title, and this is the Astros' only World Series title, so many teams are not really going to acknowledge this 2017 Astros team as a World Series title championship team. The Dodgers aren't going to get remembered as far as they're going to get handed the World Series because that wouldn't make any sense either. And it's not like they're going to have a parade for a 2017 championship here in 2020. So it's one of these situations where some analysts have said that they should get their World Series title stripped and the trophy should be stripped as well. And there's just a blank as far as the spot where the 2017 World Series champion should be. And others should say, hey, they should keep their stuff, but they should expect to get hit. They should expect all these kind of retaliation moves by other teams because they're not happy about what they did. So you have many sides of the spectrum as far as that, but I think managers aren't going to really do much as far as protecting their players from hitting the other guys because they know, obviously, if you hit the Astros players and a brawl starts out, you're going to get suspended. And it's a shame because their suspension is going to be longer than any other suspension that the Astros players are ever going to get. And it just shows you kind of the bad kind of, policing I'd say of the MLB because if you go back to a few years ago the Braves general manager John Coppola was basically banned from baseball for illegally paying prospects and running a kind of janky type of international farm system and he got suspended and eventually he was banned from baseball for life so he can't do anything regarding the MLB but with this Astros thing where you know we have players seemingly that are knowingly cheating 
and they have all these signs like banging on trash cans, using buzzers to alert hitters when certain pitches are coming, that there's going to be absolutely no punishments at all. And these players, obviously, they're going to have to live with it as far as, far as internal guilt, but externally, they've still got their rings on. They're still doing all right. They're still going to be World Series champions in their eyes, but in the eyes of many other or I should say all the 29 other MLB teams, they're not going to be remembered as World Series champions. So all I could say, I guess, to close out this argument in this segment is that the Astros players should really buckle up for this year because they know that it is going to be a world win and nothing is going to come easy for the Astros at all in 2020. But with that being said, this has been the end of the third quarter here on The End Zone. Don't touch that dial. End your day with the end zone. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to the end zone with Cutler and Cruz. And welcome back to the end zone here on Wiggle 91.1 FM. You've reached the fourth quarter of the end zone and the fourth quarter today is going to be about the NFL. There's not much going on as far as the NFL. The draft is going to be approaching real soon, but that's still not for another month or two. But there has been some NFL news that's been happening the past few days, even today, as recently as today, that needs to be discussed. For instance, there's a source on ESPN saying that ex-Panthers tight end Greg Olson is signing a one-year $7 million deal with the Seattle Seahawks. And the contract includes a $5.5 million guaranteed money stick stipend as far as that. So a big move for the Seahawks. They finally get a veteran tight end in Greg Olson. He's been reliable the past few years or so with the Carolina Panthers. He was with them on the Super Bowl roster. He's been one of the best tight ends in the league for the past decade or so. Started his career with Chicago. Now the Panthers. And now he's with the Seahawks. So this is going to be a good move for the Seahawks, I feel like, because Russell Wilson now gets a... For sure, nice security blanket as far as a tight end is concerned. Olsen has battled some injuries the past few years as he's missed about 18 games in the past three years, but I think that he is going to be a veteran, a welcome veteran addition to a Seahawks team that was pretty good last year and even made it to the NFC Divisional round before losing to the Packers. But this gives him finally a reliable weapon and another reliable weapon for Russell Wilson who now has a budding receiving star in DK Metcalf as well as a reliable receiver in Tyler Lockett who plays the slot. So this is going to be a nice little kind of trio right there for the Seahawks. But also going back to Olsen, he visited with the Bills and Redskins, but he felt the most comfortable with the Seahawks, the source said, and that makes sense in my opinion because Seahawks are going to be the most playoff-ready team out of those three teams that were named in there. Another NFL headline is that Drew Brees is going to make another run at it with the Saints. And to put that in easier terms, Drew Brees is going to be returning in 2020. He'll be back for the 2020 season. And it should be a good campaign for the Saints as this is going to be Drew Brees' 20th season. He's turning, he turned 41 in January and he was expected to be an unrestricted free agent March 18th. But he didn't want to test open market. So he only had two choices, either stay in New Orleans or retire. That was 
by his standards, so he wants to play one more year in New Orleans, and you wouldn't blame him, especially after the way the Saints have gotten eliminated in the playoffs the past few years. Of course, 2017, or first year you had the Minnesota Miracle where Stephon Diggs caught the ball and the Saints player completely whiffed on the tackle, and that's how the Vikings won the game and went to the NFC Championship game. Then you had the NFC Championship game against the Saint or against the Rams, where there was that big time pass interference call that was not called by the referees, where the Rams player clearly ran into the Saints player before the ball got there, or basically when the ball got there. And then you had last year when the Saints lost in the wild card round in an upset to the Vikings, and there could have been a pass interference call on Kyle Rudolph who pushed off a little bit. But the refs didn't call it, and the Vikings ended up winning that game and going on to play the 49ers in the NFC Divisional game. So the Saints do probably feel like they've had really bad luck on their side the past few years. And Drew Brees still wants to prove that that he's an elite quarterback. And there's no doubt he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Nobody's ever going to question that about Drew Brees. But I can understand that from his perspective, you don't want to go out on that sour note. You want to still make a run at the Super Bowl and try to add another one to your resume because Breeze won a Super Bowl in 2009, which was his only Super Bowl, and that felt so long ago. The league's changed so much since then. The Saints have had the roster to do it. That's probably the frustrating part for the Saints fans is that they know they have the offense and the defense to get to a Super Bowl this year. If the 49ers ever do decline or if some other teams don't step up their game, so the Saints are in a good spot. Drew Brees, I think, still has enough in the tank to guide the team for at least one more year. You still got Michael Thomas out there, one of the best receivers in the league. Jared Cook's a solid tight end. I do think the Saints need to address their second wide receiver spot in either free agency or in the draft because you can't rely on Ted Ginn Jr. to be your number two receiver because we don't. We all know Ted Ginn's a really fast receiver, but he's inconsistent as far as his hands, and that's something that's plagued him throughout his career. And the Saints just need something more reliable as far as a receiver is concerned. So if they draft a receiver, there's plenty of great receivers in this draft. Or if they go out in the free agent market and try to snag a receiver, then I think that'll pay off and should ease the load of Drew Brees and Michael Thomas a little bit. You still got Alvin Kamara out there. So Kamara, you know, is one of the most versatile running backs in the league. So that should play a huge role in it as well. Saints have a decent enough defense to... Hold on to leads if necessary to a bend, not break defense, which is good enough in the NFL these days. So I think the Saints are in good shape. Drew Brees, I think, still has a good year left in him. I think also he's possibly heard the rumors that Taysom Hill would have been the quarterback if Drew Brees had retired, and I don't think Drew Brees really wants that to happen because we know Taysom Hill is kind of a gadget guy. He's not really going to really beat you downfield as far as passing vertically a lot because he has such a small sample size as far as passing the ball because he's used in so many different ways for the Saints offense. So I think the Saints weren't ready for that just yet. And I think this basically means Teddy Bridgewater's out the door. He's an unrestricted free agent while Taysom Hill is a restricted free agent. I think Teddy's going to try to try try his um, luck somewhere else. And I think he is deserving of being a starting quarterback in the NFL still. He, had dealt, he was dealt with a bad hand in Minnesota. He got hurt. Because he did a decent job with the Vikings, but then he just got hurt and then had to kind of settle for a backup role. But I think Bridgewater still has enough in the tank, and he'll be able to do his thing as far as be a starting quarterback in the NFL. Hill, I don't think he's ready yet. And the Saints are still in good shape, I feel like, with this team. They shouldn't have any problem being among the NFC's elite in the NFL. 
And I think that Drew Brees still, like I said, has enough in the tank. He's still really accurate with the ball. His deep ball accuracy perhaps isn't as great as it used to be, but when you have slot receivers like Michael Thomas, you don't really need to throw the ball deep that much. And when you also have Alvin Kamara who can make his own moves just by passing the ball at the backfield, I think that's going to help his cause as well. So we'll see what Drew Brees does as far as this 20th NFL season and what has been a great Hall of Fame career for Brees. But with that being said, this has been the end of the end zone here on Wego 91.1 FM. Thank you for listening to another episode. We're on every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time. And if you want to follow us on Twitter, follow us at EndZoneWeagle, at EndZoneWEGL. That is our Twitter handle. I'm Javon Guller. Thank you so much for listening to The End Zone. Have a great rest of your week. Congrats, you've reached The End Zone with Cutler and Cruz on Weagle 91.1. Make sure to tune in next Tuesday at 4 for all the trending sports news that you need. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at EndZoneWEGL. Until next time.